Greetings. My name is Blake Schmida alongside Leo Menchetti, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Act of Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship, service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. Today, we share with you part one of two of our series with guests Steve and Bruce Feller, Bob's sons, as well as his grandson, Daniel Feller. Hello, folks. Today on the Bob Feller Act of Valor podcast, we are happy to welcome the Feller family onto the podcast. Uh, the first question I have for Steve and Bruce is, can you tell us a favorite memory of your dad? Well, I've been thinking about this, and I appreciate you guys asking that question because I've been doing a lot of thinking you know, it, that question forces you to go back in into your life to try to figure out what is most important. And um, I came up with nothing being most important. Everything is everything is important. It just, you know, it just brings back memories of all these years with him. And, you know, there's baseball memories and then there's family memories growing up and, you know, just interacting with my dad and my mom and it's just, you know, as far as, as far as the baseball experiences, it's just all the experience of, of traveling for all those years when we were kids and, and uh, you know, going with my dad to ball games. And luckily we got to go into the clubhouse and out in the bullpen, behind the bullpen at Cleveland Stadium and, and just all the signings he did. I'll swear my dad did more signings. He's probably signed more baseballs and autographs than anybody in history, I'll swear, because he was constantly signing. So taking us, you know, taking us to those, and also um, when he was giving talks, he would take my either Marty or Bruce and myself, and, and just meeting all the people that, you know, he would interact with, not only baseball players, but just general public. And it was always interesting sitting with him, listening to him talk about stories, you know, baseball stories, Navy stories, Iowa stories, Cleveland stories. So there's nothing that was most important, but as, as far as family, you know, it's, I remember my dad trying to teach me how to drive. And I remember the most important thing to him was before you even press the accelerator, you know, you have to make sure the brakes are working. That's always, that stuck with me for all these years. And playing catch, you know, he, he constantly wanted to play catch. So we'd go outside after dinner and, and play catch with him. And I don't know, we talked a little bit, not a heck of a lot, but um, it was just bringing back memories and then him installing a batting cage for us at uh, our home in Gates Mills and and also back to baseball, meeting all the all the players that you hear about, and you know, just just all these memories as everybody has growing up, you know, with with their dad. So there's not nothing that is the most important. I just I just can't put a put my finger on anything most important. They were all important, and they all had to do with us, um, you know, growing up as kids and him. Um, impressing on us to be ourselves, you know, you know, he, I guess we probably knew he was famous, but we just, as kids, what do you know? You know, you don't think about it. And he made sure that when he was coaching 
us in baseball, he always said, uh, you know, you guys are going to hear a lot from the opposing team as far as, oh, you're Bob Feller's son. You should be perfect at baseball. And he said, you know, don't listen to them. And I don't, I think when he played baseball, it was the same thing. He didn't really listen to the players to get riled up. I don't think he was ever thrown out of a game in his life. He said, you know, don't listen to them. Beat them on the baseball field. Just beat them on the field. That's all. You know, that'll shut them up. So that's that stuck with me through throughout my entire life. Not to pay too much attention as to what people are saying, but, uh, you know, just uh, close down the, the rabbit ears, as he would say. The rabbit so, ears, and he, he got heckled a lot. Of course, they all did back then. A lot of crude stuff, but he just laughed at it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and evidently he. I guess he learned that as a kid from his from his dad. Yeah, Bruce. Do you have any other? Uh, do you have any memories? You mentioned going to the clubhouse, and and uh, and of course, yeah. We have hundreds of memories that could take hours just to get started, and uh, but you know, just pick a few at random here. I mean, the, the clubhouse was pretty memorable for me. I mean, Steve's five years older than I am, but I remember when I was four or five. I was that would be around fifty four. And they were, uh, you know, when they were in the World Series, um, uh, going in the clubhouse and hanging out with, you know, Larry Doby and uh, Hal Narragon. It was, I was really fond of Hal Narragon, the catcher. And uh, then we'd go in and take a whirlpool, Steve and Marty and I, and that stainless steel whirlpool that they used. That was a pretty vivid memory. Then I remember standing out around him signing autographs in his uniform, waiting for him for 20 minutes at a crack. Um, but, uh, and then, then Steve mentioned, uh, teaching activities like driving. Well, he taught me how to tie my shoes. That's one vivid memory sitting upstairs in our Gates Mills house. And, uh, not sure how, how old I was, but it was low single digits, I'm sure. And I still tie my shoes exactly the same way, two thirds of a century later. And, uh, he taught us all how to drive. And I guess we were around 15. He did a great job of that. He, he once let me take the wheel when we were driving to Detroit for an appearance. I was I didn't have a license yet, so thank God we didn't get pulled over. And that, that driving lesson continued in my 20s once we were in midtown Manhattan. He said, okay, keep your foot on the gas and your foot on the brake at the same time. Keep them both down. So that works, New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Bruce, something else about driving. You know, my dad had... He had a plane, a Beechcraft Bonanza, that he would fly quite a bit. And um, Bruce, did he ever um, have you take over the uh, whatever the wheel or the, you know, the plane to fly the plane? Yeah, I mean, the the, uh, the yoke. I mean, you, you yeah, the yoke, over. right. There weren't two yokes in a Bonanza. There was a central shaft. And then he would have it in the left. Then he'd raise the thing up and put it down. And, and he'd let us play around with it a little bit. He'd but keep that his... airplane, we, that was quite a memory. We, he'd fly the family around. He got that in the late 40s on beach, when the Bonanzas were first coming out. He absolutely loved flying. And so he'd fly us around to vacation spots up to northern Wisconsin, and the river where our mother's parents had a lakeside summer compound. And also to Florida during uh, spring vacation at school. That was a long flight. And uh, But then... What's kind of hilarious, he would fly from Lost Nation Airport in Willoughby, Ohio, just east of Cleveland, whenever there was a game. He would fly downtown Cleveland to the Lakefront Airport, which was about 15 miles, 
So he'd go to all the trouble of flying his plane, taking off, flying 15 miles, and then landing it. And then when he landed, he would pull out of the baggage compartment a little fold-up scooter that he would uh, crank up, and then he would ride through the crowds to the ballpark. Well, you can't imagine that happening nowadays, right? <laughs> no. So just many, many memories. Yeah, we were, we were lucky. Um, I mean, we really were lucky because of all the, all the ballplayers we met. And, you know, everybody from the Indians and Ted Williams and all the dignitaries that would come to Cleveland to the stadium and, and all that. So we were very lucky just meeting everybody. And um, I, you know, nowadays it's different because everybody asks for autographs nowadays. I, I never one time asked for an autograph of anybody, even, you know, even Ted Williams before my dad passed away. We're, they were together in Des Moines in a suite in the downtown Marriott signing autographs. And I was listening to stories and I was, oh, geez, I was just thinking, oh, I wish I had a recorder because they would remember like every pitch and, and when they played each other. They were, they were just very ferocious enemies when they were playing baseball, but they were best of friends after they retired. It was just, you know, we were so lucky to be around people like that and meet all the ballplayers and, and their wives and everybody that has anything to do with the Indians. Steve and Bruce, you guys have had some pretty incredible experiences yourself with your father in the sport of baseball. But Daniel, I had a question for you too. We know that you got to spend a lot of time with your grandfather during spring training. Could you tell us what it was like for you to get a chance to hang out with him like that? Yeah, definitely. So when I was in high school during spring break, I would go down and spend uh, a week with my grandfather in Winter Haven. First Winter Haven and then in Arizona after the Indians moved their camp. But I mean, yeah, uh, spring training with him was just kind of an incredible experience. So he maintained, I think through the age of 92, a locker in the Indians clubhouse. Uh, and he would get dressed every day. He would go in there. He's probably the only person on the team that wore stirrups, uh, in the two, in the two thousands. It was kind of not a fad by then. Um, and he would go and they would announce him before every game, uh, before every spring training game. And he would be playing catch. It was usually he and I would play catch, uh, on the field before the first inning, uh, and then he would retreat to the uh, a little picnic table behind the bleachers and sign autographs for about six hours. Um, and that was an incredible experience, you know, just getting to sit behind him. And uh, it, it was a little bit boring for me because I was like 15 and I really, you know, I, I wanted to be playing baseball and I wanted to be, you know, practicing with the minor leaguers and stuff. But I would just sit there and watch him uh, talk to everybody. And he just loved to talk to folks and he loved to ask them, you know, where they were from and, you know, what their relation uh, was to the Indians and, and to baseball. And uh, so he, you know, he really took time with people, which was cool too. Uh, you know, loved to entertain people's stories about when they watched him pitch in the forties and fifties. Um, you know, no matter how many times he heard that he was always willing to, to listen and talk and, and interact with folks, which was, which was a really cool thing. Um, in terms of kind of my experience with him, it was really fun. Uh, you know, we wake up early, we, we shared a, uh, a room with two queen beds at the holiday inn in winter Haven. And every morning we'd wake up, uh, put on our 
baseball uniforms. He would get in his rental car. We'd get in the rental car, go over to 7-Eleven. He'd, he'd buy New York Times. He said, uh, it's a little biased, but it's the best newspaper in the world. Uh, so he read the New York Times every day. And we'd go over to the ballpark. And we'd usually start the morning with some baseball workouts. Um, so one thing he loved to have me do was uh, throw a baseball against the big concrete wall that he had the Indians erect. So it was just cinder blocks about 15 feet tall. And, and Bob thought that it'd be a really good idea to have the major leaguers uh, throw balls off the wall, just like he did when he was a little kid. Or maybe it might have been part of the training regimen in the 30s and 40s for the players themselves. But, you know, that was his idea of state-of-the-art spring training equipment was a cinder block wall in the middle of the field, uh, which was pretty funny. Um, but he would also throw me batting practice. You know, I, I definitely am a feller because I was more of a pitcher than a, than a hitter. But actually, most people don't know, Bob Feller hit eight home runs uh, during his time in the majors. So, you know, have, have, have some power in the family. Uh, but he would throw me batting practice. He'd throw me batting practice every day while we were at spring training. And he did this until he was 92, I think was my last year with him at spring training. And he got it over the plate. You know, his curveball didn't have a lot of bite on it when he was 90, but you know, he was, he was throwing pretty good. One time I hit it really hard back through the box and, you know, thank God he was behind the screen, but so there, there was some interesting moments there, but I, I just remember him throwing me batting practice and all the major leaguers would walk by. Travis Hafner was my favorite player on the Indians at the time, and he would walk by, and I was like 15 and just taking batting practice in the major league cage. That was crazy. We also liked to hang around the Indians clubhouse and have lunch. We'd have lunch with the Indians every day, and um, we would just love talking to the players. I remember talking to CC Sabathia and watching CC Sabathia just eat plate after plate of potato salad while we were hanging out with him eating sandwiches. So that was, that was pretty fun too. Um, but yeah, I could, I could keep talking about this forever, but it was, it was well, Dan, Dan artist. Daniel was a very powerful pitcher. Uh, you know, he, he how, how tall are you Dan? Six, three. Well, I, I topped out at, uh, 87 miles per hour, which is how fast grandpa was throwing when he was 11, probably. Uh, so well, how old were you like 17? <laughs> yeah. 17 or something. But then, uh, threw his arm out. Yeah, threw my arm out. Can't, you know. And my grandfather actually had an arm injury at one point in his career. I don't, I don't remember if it was in the early 40s, before the war, maybe after the war, but it was a newspaper story. And recently I was looking through some newspaper clippings and it was a headline. And I think he went to a chiropractor who just uh, miraculously cured his his woes. So that, that was pretty interesting. But he was, you know, he was so durable and he never really got too injured in his career, which was just kind of a testament to how important he thought physical training was, you know, it wasn't, wasn't really a big focus at the time in the majors conditioning and, and strength training, but, you know, he had all these kind of idiosyncratic regimens like using weighted balls or using small weights and doing sprints and doing running and establishing your legs at the beginning of the season as a pitcher and things that are taken for granted now, but he was kind of ahead of his time in that regard. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. That was definitely many great stories about CC Sabathia of eight home runs is definitely nothing to, to sleep on. And uh, my next question for Steve is, uh, how did your dad's hard work on the farm in Van Meter, uh, Iowa, growing up, influence his life? Well, I think it influenced his life for his entire life. And I, 
this, I mean, this is a great question as far as, you know, what did he learn when he was a kid from his dad and his grandfather who played uh, semi-pro baseball? And I think it might have been his mother's father who played semi-pro, I think. Um, but yeah, growing up on a farm, I mean, he had his chores to do, you know, he had chores to do. And I think about the only other thing that he did wanted to do was play baseball. He wanted to be a baseball player from, I think, from when he was born and just, um, he, he, he just wanted to be a baseball player. I mean, that was his whole goal in life. And his his dad, I think, had the same exact goals. So they were certainly on the same page. But you can imagine a kid in, in Iowa, you know, in his teen, young teens and, and mid-teens, you know, he had his chores. He would uh, slap the hogs and, and carry buckets of water from the Raccoon River, which was in back of their farm. Up, up to a truck to transport it back to the farm. And he would have to carry these buckets of water through mud. And I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a farmer's walk, but it is a, it's a valid exercise and it's a great exercise where you carry either weights or buckets of water or buckets of sand for a distance slowly. And so when he was growing up as a kid, he was doing these chores. And I don't know if it was benevolence to him or not that he was actually building his body up for um, for baseball. And, you know, he had when he signed after he signed, um, I remember a lot of the players um, through his whole career would make fun of him because he was always doing calisthenics out in the outfield. He was running, um, you know, wind sprints, uh, long throw, things like that. One of his big secrets that uh, that he would give people uh, who ask him about exercising was when he would do uh, bench dips. You know, he'd have a bench and he'd, he'd go down and do bench dips. And also he would do uh, fingertip press ups, push ups. and that evidently helped the uh, the ligaments around the ulnar nerve, which is in your elbow, and it helped him with curveballs and fastballs. And um, I think that stayed with him through his career doing these exercises. And you know, just the work ethic that his parent his parents put into him, and also the fact that he caught on to that. And he just kept it up for his whole baseball career. It was just amazing. One of the things I, I want to refer back to what Dan said a few minutes ago about the injury that he had was in, um, it was in early 1937. His first year was 36. And he, um, at the start of the season in April, he was pitching, I think, um, the first opening series of the year in Cleveland and he slipped on the mound because it had been raining. And I know he said that there, everybody in the infield could hear a pop in his arm. So that continued on for essentially three months. And, you know, the Indians were going crazy. My dad wasn't too worried about it, but after a few months, he started becoming worried, worrying about it. And so what happened is that Cy Slapnicka, who was a gentleman who, who um, 
signed my dad was now at that time, the general manager of the Indians. And they did find a gentleman who was only a couple blocks away from where my dad lived in an apartment at that time. And this guy was what was called a mechanotherapy bone and muscle uh, manipulation doctor. And so my dad went in there and this gentleman evidently ran his fingers up and down my dad's arm and got to his elbow. And, and so he said right away, he turned around and told Sai uh, Slapnick, yes, this gentleman has adhesions in his elbow, whatever adhesions are, I'm not sure. But then he grabbed my dad's arm and just twisted it. And my dad said he was in extreme pain for probably a few seconds. And then after that, no pain. And so right then and there, just um, he was healed after months and months, three months of, of not pitching at all. He had only pitched six, six innings the entire um, season up to that point in July when he came back. And the funniest thing I think about that whole episode is that the, uh, the bill to the Indians from this gentleman was a whole $10. And so it actually saved my dad's career because a lot of managers um, may have put him back in, you know, to pitch, to tell him to work it out and it may never have worked out. So geez Louise, what a, what a, difficult situation for the Indians, and luckily it worked out for both the Indians and my dad. To our listeners, this concludes this episode of the American Valor podcast. This conversation is brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, Huntington Ingalls, and the Cleveland Guardians. Please feel free to leave your comments in the comments section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevalorward.org. There you can learn about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor podcast and more. For Blake Schmida, Leah Manchetti, and everyone at the American Valor podcast, thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.